Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your video cast, episode 116, podcast episode 106 for the week ending January 6, 2022. Happy New Year, everyone. So we'll kick it off as we always do with some quick media stuff. Then we'll uh, do a bit of the uh, salient news and then we're going to get right down to the article of the week. A lot of great stuff to cover between the Fed, between China, between all the exciting things we have to look at and kind of outlook for 2022. So uh, first and foremost, I'd like to thank uh, Ellie Terrett, and Jerry Willis, as well as Ash Webster for having me on Varney and Company. That was my first time on uh, that show on Fox Business. And uh, it was just a simple clip with Outlook for 2022. Uh, summary was basically higher volatility uh, and lower returns. And, uh, and that will be the case for the general indices. But uh, I think under the surface, there's going to be a lot more opportunities to outperform in 2022. As rates rise, uh, the dispersion becomes uh, larger, meaning uh, stocks move less in tandem, and there's a great opportunity for stock pickers to do tremendously well. So uh, that was that. Uh, then I'd like to thank um, I'd like to thank Jack Denton over at Barron's for including me in his article. Was very excited to be in Barron's. That was my first time. Um, and it was just a quote on uh, Outlook. I said, 2021 has been a low volatility, high return year for the S&P 500. This is reminiscent of 2013 and 2017. Looking forward to 2022, like 2014 and 2018, we expect volatility to pick up. Tom Hayes, chair of uh, Great Hill Capital, told Barron's. Uh, and... And that, and, that, and that was that. So thanks to Jack Denton. Uh, love Barron's. And uh, that's my favorite uh, newspaper is Barron's. My second favorite is the New York Post. Uh, and I want to thank, uh, thank Lydia Moynihan for including me in her article. It was about trading by Congress people and senators. Um, in this case, this particular article was about the Pelosi's. Uh, who seemed to do quite well. And it's interesting. Um, so they bought a bunch of long-dated call options on like um, Salesforce, Roblox, Google, uh, Disney, which I actually agree with. And uh, and my quote, I mean, I went through a lot uh, of uh, dialogue with Lydia, but the quote she chose was, they're, uh, they're trying to ride the momentum, Hayes told the Post. The Pelosi's live in San Francisco. They're uh, around a lot of hype, so I'd see how they could get caught up in the euphoria. So I, I was basically referring to the metaverse uh, euphoria that's out there. Uh, but it was interesting because I went through uh, quite a few of the trades that the Pelosi's did over the last two years. And I would say that the average retailer, uh, retail trader would, would go a long way to actually take a look at these trades. I think most of them are Paul Pelosi, uh, Nancy's uh, spouse, because he does the exact opposite of what the retail trader does, which is why he wins so frequently. You know, everyone says, oh, do they have special information? And the type of trades that he's putting on uh, are the antithesis of what someone would put on if they had inside information, meaning... Um, the average retail trader tries to do short-dated trades in the next week or the next month that are way out of the money, very quote-unquote cheap, 
but have a 90% probability of expiring worthless, and they usually do, and that's why retail uh, traders tend to blow up their accounts over and over and over. Whereas if you look at Paul Pelosi, what he's doing is he's choosing high-quality companies uh, and he's buying deep in the money so they have intrinsic value. So if the stock is, you know, call it $200, he might be buying a 190 or 180 call option, but he's buying it a year, a year out. He's buying long-dated options where the odds are dramatically uh, in your favor because of, of, uh, of trend, effectively, is what it comes down to. And um, uh, so, you know, it's effectively a stock replacement strategy. What he's trying to do is magnify the returns on his bets uh, over a longer period. So rather than paying $200 for the stock, he might be paying $20 for the option. So if the stock goes up 30% over a year, rather than making 30% uh, on that money, he's making, you know, 100 or 120% and he's putting up a lot less money uh, as well. So uh, something to keep in mind, but uh, great article. Thanks again to Lydia Moynihan. Love the New York Post, love Barron's and Fox, of course. Uh, and then uh, also want to thank um, Meta Singh for including me in her article in Reuters. Uh, that was on Friday. Uh, love Reuters. Everyone reads Reuters. If you have a terminal, these are the first things you see. And, um, and basically, the market was doing nothing the last day of the year. Market subdued. It's typical for the market to be down a little bit on this last day of the year, said Thomas Hayes. So thanks to Meta. And then also on January 3rd, I want to thank Bansari Kamdar, Meta Singh, and Shashank Nayar for including me. Uh, the value reopening trade was up. I said, looks like the reopening trade is in full force this morning. And it basically says the market is looking through Omicron. It's something we can live with like the seasonal flu, said Thomas Hayes. So uh, thanks to them. Now, want to go into some of the bad news that came out this week on China. And the reason that I'm loving the bad news on China and China tech is because I said in recent weeks that Stocks don't rally on good news. They rally on less bad news. And that's what you're seeing right now. So we saw a lot of bad headlines on China this week. And yet Alibaba is now up about 15% off of its lows. Uh, it looks like the bottom is in and now we're going to press higher. Um, it looks, what is it about? Yeah, so uh, China rolls out new regulation to rein in algorithms used on apps as Beijing continues to clip the wings of big tech firms. So the, these stocks are now rallying on this type of news. So when it was the first time over the summer, it took the market by storm. All these stocks sold off big. Now the market is conditioned to it and it's known. And the more specificity, the better it actually is because now we'll know the rules of the game. And the bigger players, all this is going to do, as I said uh, in previous podcasts, is... Um, uh, basically cut out competition. No, there will be no small or mid-sized firms competing with Alibaba anymore because it will cost too much to comply and therefore Alibaba will uh, have a beachhead and control all the business. And that's all regulation ever does is it makes the big bigger. Uh, and, uh, and that's the name of the game. Same thing happened with Microsoft with the antitrust, etc. So uh, Chinese internet watchdog posts uh, revised app rules to tighten cybersecurity provisions even further. Again, all these stocks are up big time this week. Finally, and that was another thing we pointed to, the turn of the calendar was a big deal. No one could show these on their books at the end of last year, and now they're all saying these are just too cheap to pass up. 
Uh, and then lastly, uh, there was another small fine for a couple of, I think, Baba and Tencent for not disclosing a deal, and it was like $70,000 or something like that. So again, they're rallying because the bad news is in the rearview mirror, and it's less bad news. So, uh, And then finally, uh, China is haunted by its one-child policy as it tries to encourage couples to conceive. The reason I bring this up again, and we've talked about this a lot in the past, is because China, uh, while everyone is out saying that China is going to be the new dominant world leader, and uh, certainly uh, their, their economy has grown quite large, uh, I, my bet is that uh, they have a higher probability of being the next Japan. And that won't happen overnight, but if you look at the demographics, it's probably a few years off. So what we're seeing with this regulatory crackdown and them almost, well, not almost, effectively crashing their economy in 2021 now they have to reverse course and they have to aggressively stimulate. And we've been seeing that in recent weeks with the reserve requirement ratio. They lowered the, the uh, main prime rate a bit. They're going to lower the reserve requirement ratio even more. They are injecting liquidity and now they are cutting taxes uh, because um, when you punish the biggest employers and the source of growth and the source of national pride like Alibaba, uh, global competitors, uh, you hurt the little person because people start getting laid off, their, their uh, outlook for the future dims, they don't want to have children because why would you want to have children if the, the greatest opportunity givers are going to be crushed, crushed which is uh, you know, the, the Alibabas, the 10 cents, etc. Uh, that's where all the high paying jobs are. Uh, so uh, so I, I, would, I would look out on this one. And the other thing that has made America great has been immigration over time, okay? You need immigration, well, let me just say, you need population growth to make the capitalist system work, uh, uh, which is the greatest system in the entire world. And, uh, uh, you know, the beauty that we have in America is everyone around the world still wants to come to America. Uh, and that's what keeps our population growing because our birth rate has declined not as much as Europe, not as much as China, not as much as Japan, thank God, which is why you see the outperformance of our economy and our stock market, etc. Uh, but immigration has come down over the last four or five years. And uh, I think that's a tragedy because it's going to hurt us economically if that is not reversed uh, immediately. Now, you can argue uh, you want a certain type of person to immigrate, etc. I think you need a, a plethora of all types of people. You need a ton of people that are hungry and want opportunity and are willing to work hard. Uh, and you want the and some of the educated people that start businesses and that type of thing uh, as well. But we need them all. That's that's the melting pot because even the ones that come in that can't speak the language perfectly that are hungry and work seven days a week, you know, 16 hours a day, their kids get into our school system and they go on to become the next business owners and the next, uh, you know, uh, inventors and the next, uh, et cetera. So uh, that's the one thing, you know, I'm, I'm saying China's got some headwinds, you know, three, four, five years out. Everyone thinks they're going to just dominate everything. And I think that that's a low probability and particularly with the self-inflicted wounds, if they don't reverse those quickly, which I think they are, uh, having that declining population, um, they may not become the dominant power that everyone thinks because everyone in the 80s when the Japanese were buying uh, Rockefeller Center or buying all these U.S. assets that we were laying off to them at, at elevated prices, 
shortly thereafter, because of their demographics, because of their aging population, because of their low birth rate, they went into effectively a depression for 30 years. And they're, you know, they're, you know, people think they're coming out of it now, but they still don't have the population. So it's not really going to be a, a true story. The other thing that Japan never had was, uh, besides the declining population, they have no immigration. Same thing with China, no immigration. So unless they get that birth rate up, the idea of them being the dominant leader um, you know, looking five and 10 years out is uh, very small because they, they don't have the immigration. But the U.S. needs to take a lesson from the Japanese and from the Chinese and get the immigration cranking quickly. Uh, high quality, you know, all different types. Just get that thing growing at 2%. Plus, maybe some incentives, you know, they want to do all the social spending with the Build Back Better, which now looks like it's not going to pass. I would do massive incentives to have new children. Uh, that would be my primary thing. You want some type of extra support, have a child in the next 24 months, have two, uh, and we'll figure out something, you know, whether it's school vouchers or child care vouchers or something like that. But get the population growing. That's going to continue our dominance moving forward. Uh, not the alternative that we saw in uh, parts of Asia that have not only declining birth rate, but low immigration. Europe has the declining birth rate, relatively low immigration, although it's better than what's, what's in Asia. Um, uh, but, but that is, is a key factor. Uh, moving right along. China tech sell-off deepens as 10 cent sales spooks traders. Again, more rallying on bad news. Now, here's, here's some good news. China Premier Li urges bigger tax cuts to ensure economic growth. So they're starting to realize, like we said last year, they, they were tightening too early while the rest of the world is loosening. Well, they got hurt the most while the rest of the world uh, flourished last year. Well, guess what? The exact opposite is true this year. The rest of the world is tightening, and I'll say that our Fed is, is acting against... Uh, uh, too aggressively, they're doing an emotional knee-jerk reaction, which, which we're going to talk about in the article of the week. But the developed world is tightening, uh, and even Asia is tightening, while China is just starting aggressive loosening. We talked about the reserve requirement ratio, the prime rate, uh, tax cuts, uh, liquidity injections. They're, they, they're incentivizing, they opened up, I think, another $172 billion of loan facilities for businesses. So I think the opposite's going to happen this year, where the returns in the developed world might be subdued, uh, as they were in China last year, and the, the returns in China, may, China may in fact be the top performer in 2022 uh, and have, have a record year. So, um, so, so that's what's happening in the intermediate term. Uh, a couple of things, Wells Fargo, Bank of America drop price target hikes on bullish loan data. Uh, banks should start... Uh, 2022 on a good note. This is from JP Morgan Chase analyst Vivek Junasia. Uh, on a good note, because of a sharp surge in commercial and industrial loan growth, which we talked about last year, that was part of our thesis. Uh, in late Q4, Junasia said in his note to clients, uh, he raised Wells Fargo's price target and also Bank of America's price target. You know, it's interesting as well as Citigroup's. Um, you know, everyone's asking me about banks now. So, you know, everyone knows last year banks was our huge trade. Wells Fargo was our biggest position ever in, uh, um, uh, at $25 and one cent was our basis. And, um, so now that's more than doubled. Uh, 
um, everyone's interested. And I, I would say that's when I start to get less interested. You know, all the people that were on TV when we were building our positions saying this is, you know, DeFi and who needs branches with uh, chains on the pens, etc., is now getting very interested in banks. So they probably have a little bit more to go because the, the herd is now getting involved. Uh, but, but uh, you know, I would never put new money to work here and I'll be looking you know, in the next 10, 20, 30 percent uh, to be shaving some off uh, for sure with, with all the euphoria coming in. But I do think they've got a good amount to run. And we haven't even got the major catalyst for Wells Fargo, which is uh, the asset cap being lifted. Uh, that'll probably be, uh, you know, sometime in 2022. And probably that that last bout of euphoria uh, would be a good place to take a little bit off and, and uh, bank some profits. Um, Boeing uh, stock rises on new 737 MAX order. This was a big deal. They got an order from Allegiant for 50 uh, 737 MAX jets. And Allegiant has never been a customer of theirs. So they took this business from Airbus, which is positive because Airbus had been eating their lunch at the end of last year, uh, you know, winning orders because uh, Boeing was in the penalty box. Uh, Boeing also today got another four orders for 777 freighters um, from uh, Atlas Air Worldwide. So that was positive news. But the big thing is they have their uh, plan to get recertification in China. They got to get that completed, hopefully in the next few weeks. And I think that's when it really takes off. Uh, First signals emerged that inflation might be near a peak. This is very important considering we're gonna be covering a lot about inflation uh, in our article of the week. Data released this week seem to indicate that inflation might be nearing its peak in Western economies. I said that January, uh, December 15th and 16th, which was the Fed meeting when they're all panicking, as you saw now in the minutes this week about inflation, I said that panic would probably be the peak of all the inflation reads, meaning they wouldn't get any higher than the levels we saw uh, when they were panicking and aggressively uh, uh, speeding up the taper, which they didn't need to do, uh, talking about rate hikes in March, which they didn't need to do, and, and we'll get into that. But um, So the Institute for Supply Management's Composite Index, a key U.S. business survey, stood at 58.7 in December, falling short of expectations, but showing a continued expansion for U.S. factories. The data also showed that manufacturers' input prices and supplier delivery delays declined month on month. That was the biggest monthly drop in the prices paid measure in over a decade and leaves it at its lowest level since November 2020, Deutsche Bank analysts wrote. So uh, just to repeat that, the, the biggest monthly drop in prices paid measure in over a decade and leaves it at its lowest level since November 2020. Uh, That was in the Deutsche Bank note. So these supply chain things are easing up. We were ahead of the curve on this one. And hopefully the the Fed won't do too much damage before the data shows that they're moving too fast and they can slow down and and, uh, put their foot on the brake before it's too late. Uh, Dogs of the Dow, the reason I bring this up, this hasn't worked in the last few years, but over time it does outperform the general indices. And what it basically means, if you buy kind of the 10 worst performers, i.e. the highest yielding stocks in the Dow at the end of the year, over a long period of time, not the last few years, you tend to outperform the indices uh, consistently. And this year, the worst performers were Dow Inc., 
that has almost a 5% yield. IBM, almost a 5% yield. Verizon, almost a 5% yield. Chevron, a 4.5% yield. Merck, a 3.6% yield. Walgreens Boots Alliance, 3.5% yield. They, they just reported. They're crushing it. Uh, we've held that for a while from $42. It, it didn't do a lot. It's up to 55 but now it seems to be finally moving. Uh, Amgen, 3.5% yield. 3M, I think this one's interesting, 3.3%. Coca-Cola, 2.8%. And Intel, uh, we own from lower. And this one started to take off in the last week as well, 2.7%. So um, so I think, you know, this is a good basket to look for a few high-quality companies. Uh, a few quotes of the day I want to cover for this week. First off, Buffett, uh, at age 19, I read a book, The Intelligent Investor, and what I'm doing today at age 76, now 92, uh, is running things through the same thought process I learned from the book I read it at 19. It's interesting because, you know, a lot of interesting people follow this from, uh, you know, institutions to hedge fund managers to journalists uh, to very, you know, ultra high net worth uh, investors uh, you know, to younger college kids, to personal investors, all across the gamut. Um, and a lot of the times the younger kids will reach out to me. Uh, they're either in college or in their 20s, and they'll ask me some questions, etc. And I, I love going into the questions, you know, helping, help, helping them in any way I can. And I always give kind of the same advice. Read The Intelligent Investor, read every uh, uh, annual letter that Buffett's ever written, even the ones from his partnership. Um, uh, you know, read, uh, learn a new company a day with value line, the ones that interest you, read the annual reports, etc. And I go into some basic advice and then the, invariably they'll reach out, you know, two weeks later or three weeks later or three months later and uh, ask for an internship or something. And, and um, I say, how's your reading coming? And they're like, what, what, what do you mean? I said, you know, what, what did you learn from the intelligent investor? And invariably, uh, in most of the cases, there are some exceptions. There's one uh, young man in Canada that did a lot of reading and learned a lot from the letters, and uh, he's on his way. Um, uh, but, you know, there's no quick fix. You know, the, the old saying, only the game can teach you the game. And I shared, you know, my first, the first hedge fund I worked at, um, the principal, who was very successful, he didn't, you know, teach me hands-on. Like, I didn't sit next to his desk. He gave me, like, a list of books to read, said, read all the CFA books. You know, he pointed me in the right direction, but I had to have the initiative. I had to do it. I brought him ideas, and we'd walk through it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so I guess the point is, um, you know, Buffett's a master. You know, learn that as your basis. Do the work. you got to put in the work. And by the way, if you're resisting doing the reading, this is the worst possible business you could ever go into. This business, probably your net worth in this business is, is highly correlated to the amount of pages you read. So if you don't like reading and you don't like learning and you just want a quick fix where you can look at a couple squiggly lines on charts, you know, have at it. But uh, good luck in building wealth. Uh, wealth comes from, you know, study, experience, uh, and, uh, and, and, and thoughtful analysis over time, and it compounds, and that's how you, you, really, you really win. And then the other people, you know, I get a bunch of people, oh, I want to start, you know, start a fund or start a hedge fund. You know, candidly, and I think it was Munger who said it best, um, I, never took, I never took a penny of outside money until I didn't need any money. Uh, and, and I think that should be the rule of thumb. You know, after you've built your own net worth to a point where you can live off your own money, then at that point, you, you've proven to yourself that you've developed the skills 
to develop wealth not only for yourself, but for, for the people whose money you accept. And, um, and I, I think that's a, that's a good way to go about it is invest in your learning, invest your own money, earn, you know, working for someone else, compound that money. And when you've proven to yourself that you can build wealth and live off the wealth that you've built, uh, you know, then any, any outside money that comes is just a bonus. And, that, and that's how you really grow. And you'll grow by word of mouth and, and build a nice business that way. So, um, but, but you got to put in the work. And I thought I'd just want to emphasize that quote. The second quote, which is great, came from Charlie Munger. And it's really appropriate this week. Uh, he says, wise ones bet heavily when the world offers them that opportunity. They bet big when they have the odds. And the rest of the time, they don't. It's just that simple. So Buffett's been making some serious bets. He hasn't made a major bet in years. He's always owned Wells Fargo. He's always owned Bank of America through thick and thin. Uh, and he started buying um, Alibaba in the first quarter of last year. Then he bought some more the second quarter. He doubled down in the third quarter. And we just found out on Tuesday that he doubled down on his double down in the fourth quarter. So he's now probably brought his basis down, I would say, into the 160s with that kind of bet in the fourth quarter. Uh, and, uh, you know, he'll at least double his money over the next few years and, uh, and probably a lot more because he tends to hold things forever. So you couldn't buy the business at a better price and at a better time. So kudos uh, to um, Charlie Munger for living by his word. Uh, Bill Gross, um, you know, legendary Bond King manager, now retired. He said the market can move for irrational reasons, and you have to be prepared for that. You need to make big bets when the odds are in your favor, not big enough to ruin you, which we've covered a lot in the last couple of weeks, but big enough to make a difference. And, uh, uh, you know, for, for some people, you know, Buffett was talking about for his own personal money, he would go as high as 75% sometimes in, in, in ideas that he felt couldn't lose. Uh, our max has, has of highest conviction of all time positions has never been more than 20%. But if you structure those right with a combination of stock and derivatives, the notional can be much, much larger and you can get the effect of having that type of exposure without having the risk. Uh, and that's what we've done with Baba. So we're excited about that. Uh, here's the article from Barron's. Charlie Munger's firm doubles down on the Alibaba investment again. So the double down on the double down. Uh, and now let's go into the questions of the week, the ask me anything questions. If you guys have any, you can go to hedgefundtips.com, just hit the contact button, or you can email info at hedgefundtips.com and send them there. So uh, Josh Horton asks, I've been a listener of your podcast for over a year now, and I wanted to thank you for the outlook you share with us. I've learned a lot listening to your podcast. I've been following Alibaba, and I was curious, what are your thoughts on AT&T? So this is an interesting one. AT&T's basically been doing nothing for years. Uh, let me just pull up the chart here. So this is a 20-year monthly chart, and it's, it's effectively gone nowhere for since 2012. So for about 11 years, uh, and it does look like now it's wanting to take off. Um, let's take a look at the business. So it's trading at seven and a half times earnings. Its average uh, PE through over the last 15 years has been uh, 13. And uh, the reason it's done nothing is because the business has done nothing. So, you know, cash flow for shares hovered right around six or seven dollars a share over that uh, 10 year period. Uh, it's not really growing yet. The revenues have basically flatlined uh, for the last five years. The, um, they are paying down some debt. 
The return on capital has been about 8% a year. So, uh, uh, and, and, but they've had a big dividend payout ratio. So right now the dividend yield is about 9%, that or 8%, that's going to change. They are doing, um, uh, let's see. Uh, so the big issue is AT&T has always been a stock for uh, dividend investors. Okay, and they're spinning off Warner Media, uh, the entertainment empire they acquired in 2018. Uh, AT&T shareholders will keep a 71% stake. This is from the Wall Street Journal stake in the new media creation. So the company's stock price partly reflects how the market values that future media business, which will be called Warner Brothers Disney. Um, and now, the telecom company remains expected to pay shareholders a lower annual dividend. So basically, they're going to cut that dividend by a third, which is going to take it down to 5%. Uh, this has been a company that has been known to increase dividend over time. So this is like uh, a really bad situation. And the pe type of people that invest in this type of company are not happy, which is why the stock has been under so much pressure in the last year. The payout's going to drop from 15 billion to between eight and nine billion, so even more than a third, you know, as much as a half. That would take the dividend down to four uh, percent. So you've got all those sellers out. All the dividend investors have been dumping their stock. Um, my guess is this stock really starts to rip higher the minute they announce the dividend cut. If you remember, that was part of our thesis for Wells Fargo last year. Once the bad news is out, the stock ripped higher. And uh, I think it's going to be the same for AT&T. It's starting to move. They also reported that it's been up in the last couple of days. The stock rises after posting 1.3 million subscriber ads. So their fundamental business, which they're now going to be focused on, looks to be doing okay. Uh, and uh, this thing seems oversold. And I think that the catalyst is going to be when they announce that dividend cut. Maybe you'll get a sell-off for a day, and then it'll start to rally. So, um, so generally, I, look... Um, a business can't grow faster or slower over time than its ability, than its return on capital. So this is a business that has a consistent 8.5% return on capital, which means um, maybe there's some pent-up uh, reversion in the stock since it hasn't moved in the last uh, you know, decade, basically. But neither has the cash flow, nor the business, nor the revenues so there's no real catch-up. Uh, the only thing would be once they get out of the non-core businesses and invest in their uh, core business that maybe their return on capital goes up, uh, in which case. So, you know, looking at this simply, I, I think this could certainly shoot back up to $35, maybe $40, but I, I just don't see a catalyst for it to go much higher. Now, from $25 or wherever it is today, that's a big move. So I think you're, you've got a margin of safety. You're not going to get hurt too much to the downside. You'll probably get a shoot up to the upside mid-30s um, uh, when they cut the dividend. Um, but um, we need to see something that's going to increase their re you know, return on capital. That said, let's say they, they drop the non-core business and they actually start to grow the business at 8% a, a year. Uh, you've got a business that's basically going to double every, you know, uh, eight or nine years. So, you know, decade out rather than the stock sitting at $30, it could be at $60. And in the meantime, the dividend's grown from whatever it's going to be now, four or 5% to, uh, 
to to what will effectively be you know 10 plus percent on your cost so it's not it's not a horrible investment it's better than a bond uh so you know in, in terms of your safe bucket it might be worth worth a look i want to thank don gaffney uh sent a nice little testimonial um uh he goes i'll read quote i'll read tom's work like an economist parses a fed chairman's meeting going over it with a fine-tooth comb he's one of my favorite financial gurus uh, side notes congratulations on your two guppies the daughter swimming oh thank you for that don i appreciate it and i uh, appreciate you being with us for for some time now so uh, uh very happy for that uh next question hi tom Thanks for sharing your superb insights and analysis with us throughout 2021. I have an ask me anything question for you. I own Boeing, Lockheed, Raytheon, as well as aerospace defense sector, uh, ETF XAR, and believe these will come up at least 15 to 20% from their present levels in 2022. I agree with that. Uh, How strong do you think the secular trend is over the next two to three years in the aerospace and defense sectors? Uh, and do you think if these stocks do run up 20% in 2022, that would be prudent to hold them rather than trim them? Wishing you and your family spectacular 2022. Uh, Alan A. So, Alan, uh, this is a great question. I think the secular trend is extremely strong. And I think that, you know, some of these stocks like Boeing uh, are going to be up more than 50%, 75%. The uh, same thing with Lockheed Martin. Uh, so, you know, what I would do is after they're all up 20, 30%, send me another, ask me anything question on an individual name. I'll take a look at it and tell you my thoughts, but I, I think these guys, things are going to move for two, three plus years. Uh, and I think they're going to move a lot more than 15 to 20%. Uh, Ben first name only asks, um, uh, is IYR due for a correction? How deep? Uh, second, latest thoughts on XOP and XLF. So that's um, so he's asking about REITs, uh, energy, and financials. Do you expect another shakeout of late late money into oil, uh, XOP, XLE, and how much of a shakeout? Thank you, Ben. Um, all right, so let's take a look at these. Um, so I, I pulled these up. This is the, uh, so we'll take them one by one. Three sectors he's asking about. This is the uh, number of real estate stocks, i.e. REITs, above their 20-day exponential moving average. And as you can see, they rallied up to 100 and now they're rolling over. Uh, so in the very short term, I, I don't love the REITs and I said as much. Uh, you asked the question a few times in the last few months and I said, you know, for me, the risk reward is not attractive here. Uh, I wouldn't put new money to work and they're starting to roll over. I, I, I think they'll probably be weak for a little bit longer. You know, in the short term, rates are perceived to be rising. Um, this is not where I'd put, put money after this type of move. I mean, down, down here, it was interesting last year when no one wanted it. Any of the REITs uh, up here when everyone wants them, I'm, I'm less interested. If I, held, if I owned them, would I keep holding them? I mean, maybe, maybe. I, I'm just not crazy about it. I'll just show you another uh, example here. This is bullish percent on the real estate uh, uh, on the uh, real estate sectors. Uh, so bullish percent, that's a point and figure trigger. I don't use point and figure charting, but I do find this uh, measure pretty useful as a barometer for sectors. 
and it got up to 96. Again, the risk reward is not in your favor. Could it push back up to 100? Of course it can. Can it make new highs? Of course it can. Uh, and can it stay elevated for a few more months? Of course it can. It did that in August through June of last year. Uh, and it may very well do that. But I, I don't like the risk, not for new money. If I held it, you know, things I hold, I just hold. So uh, and not, not loving it here. It's, and it's not my favorite. There are too many other things to do where I have a margin of safety and I can double my money. Why am I going to, uh, you know, jump in front of a steamroller to pick up nickels? No, no interest. Uh, okay, second question was energy. This is the uh, percent of energy stocks in the S&P 500 above the 20-day EMA. It's at 100%. Now, that doesn't mean anything because it can stay at 100% for a while. But again, the risk-reward, you're, you're rewarded more when you're buying when it's at 0%. That's when you get paid. You know, when it's down here and you're buying, you tend to do better than when it's up here. Uh, that's not to say it can't break out and push higher. And, and, and actually, if we look at the... Uh, bullish percent energy, it does look like it has a little room. It's at 95, not 100. But again, I want to be buying when it's down at 10, when it's down at 7, when it's down at 3, when it's down at 3. That's where you make your money. So again, you're picking up nickels. Can they, some of these stocks move another 10 or 20% in the short term? Yes. Uh, over the intermediate, over the next one to three years, do I think that the whole group, I mean, the servicers is where the real value is. They haven't even moved some of the servicers. Uh, you know, like the uh, National Oil Well Varcos, um, even Schlumberger to a lesser extent. Those guys have not even started yet because uh, the rig count has been subdued. I think that rig count will go up over the next few years. As a matter of fact, Europe, I guess, didn't like paying $10 for uh, natural gas. So now they're, they're going to say natural gas is green uh, because they don't like freezing. So, um, uh, they're going to do natural gas and they're going to do nuclear, which is fantastic. Nuclear is going to be a big part of the green thing because renewables aren't enough on their own. Uh, and, and that's a very constructive thing, uh, moving forward. So, um, uh, and industrials will be a beneficiary of that, by the way. So, um, uh, energy. Yeah. I think it's got a little more juice in the short term. Um, but again, you know, where are your odds the highest when you're buying down here? Uh, so we're more looking, when we look at groups like this, we're looking, you know, over the next 10, 20, 30% to be shaving off and taking profits uh, versus um, getting more aggressive up at these levels. Uh, and then over the intermediate term, one to three years, we, we, we like them. Secularly, we like them. Uh, we like energy. We think it's going to do well, but uh, I think he's asking more of a short-term question. And then financials. Financials of the three seem to be in the best shape, like they can push higher in the short term. Uh, here it's at 75, so maybe it pushes up to 100 on the uh, 20 EMA. And then on the bullish percent, it's only at 75. So this, this technically has some room to run. And that would make sense because the yield curve stopped flattening this week. It hasn't started re-steepening yet but it stopped flattening. So that's a move in the right direction. Um, okay, the article of the week is the I dare you stock market and sentiment results. So as I get older, uh, I listen less to what people say and simply watch what they do. On Wednesday, the market was down uh, pretty big, particularly tech as a reaction to what was said in the Fed minutes from the December meeting. The key surprise was the idea that they would consider running off the balance sheet potentially right after the first rate hike, which could be as early as March. 
The last time they engaged in quantitative tightening was 2018, which inverted the yield curve in about a year and a half, and you had a recession six months later. So while the two-year two treasury, 10-year treasury uh, ratio, the 210 spread, what it's colloquially referred to, stopped racing towards one this week, also known as an inversion. So you see that white, it's starting to tick back up. Uh, I think it would be aggressive for the Fed to, number one, uh, implement three rate hikes in 2022, which the market is now pricing in. This is the uh, Fed funds futures for the December meeting is showing that the largest part of people think that the Fed funds will be between, between uh, 75 to 100 basis points. Two, uh, start the balance sheet runoff as early as March. That would be a disaster. There's no reason to do that. Um, so, so to put it in perspective, on December 18th, 2013, the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee announced that they would be tapering back on QE3 at a rate of $10 billion each meeting. The taper was completed by October 2014. So they started the taper here. And remember, in most tapers, uh, they're still buying during that taper period because they're just reducing the amount that they're buying, which is still happening right now. That's why the, the balance sheet's still going up, but that will stop in March because they've accelerated it. Um, so it took them 11 months to wind down. In our case, they started in November. They're going to be done by March. That's only five months. I think it's too fast given what we're seeing inflation already rolling over in some parts, which we covered earlier and in uh, previous weeks with certain commodities. Um, so, so they took 11 months. Uh, then they waited another 15 months after the taper was completed before they started hiking rates. So taper begins, taper ends in October. They wait another 15, uh, 15 months until December 2015. So they announced taper December 2013. The first rate hike doesn't come until December 2015. So two years. They announced taper in November. Uh, which would mean that the first rate hike wouldn't come until November of 2023 if they went um, uh, along a more reasonable path. Uh, but they're emotionally panicking rather than being more considered uh, so far. We'll see, we'll see what they actually do versus what they say, but um, uh, we'll see. So it took approximately 1.5 years after they began the balance sheet runoff before inverting the yield curve, and another six months later, we were in a recession. So here's when they started uh, quantitative tightening or running off the balance sheet as they're proposing to start as early as March, which is crazy. Uh, literally, during this period, literally took them uh, 15 months. Uh, let's see. Yeah, it took them a little over a year and a half. They inverted the curve, and then six months right after we had a recession. And and that ha every time you invert the curve within six to eighteen months, you get a recession, pretty much guaranteed throughout history. Uh, the only explanation for accelerating the taper five months this time versus eleven months last time, accelerating rate hikes expected zero to three months after taper this time as early as March versus. 15 months after taper last time. And thirdly, the balance sheet runoff slash quantitative tightening right after the first rate hike this time versus two years after the first rate hike last time is a complete emotional knee-jerk 
panic at backward-looking inflation data, which was largely caused by supply chain bottlenecks. That's not to say we won't run above-trend inflation. If you look at five-year break-evens, it's at you know 269 down from 319. Uh, that's above trend. Two percent is trend. So uh, I do think we're going to run above trend for the next three to five years, maybe two and a half, maybe three percent. And I think that will be positive. It's not going to be off the charts inflation or hyperinflation or anything of that sort. It's going to be above trend, which is good for business. It gets people investing now, gets people acting now, buying things now because they can't just sit around forever like they did in the last two decades of deflation where there was no incentive to move quickly. Uh, moving quickly is a good thing, and it usually leads to higher GDP growth. So that's a, that's a positive. Um, okay, so that is literally the only plausible explanation for talk about completely taking the punch bowl away all at once, and I will add completely irresponsibly if they do it. So if they follow through with anything like what has been proposed in the Fed, Fed minutes yesterday, uh, from December, three hikes in 2022, coupled with balance sheet runoff, they will invert the yield curve within 12 months and will have a recession within 24 months guaranteed. Uh, this likely guarantees a political change in the executive branch in 2024, which is very aggressive for a group that is supposed to be apolitical. So half of you listening are going to be very excited about that. Half of you listening would not be excited about Fed playing politics. Uh, presidents don't get reelected in the middle of a recession. Just ask Bush Sr., Carter, and Trump. The question is, will they do what they're talking about? Their talk wasn't cheap on the accelerated taper. That was a surprise uh, and completely unnecessary. Chair Powell did an about face within days of his reappointment. Now we have to wait and see if they are seasoned pros who will be thoughtful, patient, and data dependent moving forward or emotionally react to short-term spikes in data and headline noise. Here's the key text from the December Fed minutes. So participants generally emphasized that as in previous normalization episode and as expressed in the committee statement on longer run goals and monetary policy strategy, changes in the target range for the federal funds rate should be the committee's primary means for adjusting the stance on monetary policy in support of its maximum employment and price stability objectives. Agree with that. They should be using rates before any balance sheet runoff. This preference reflected the view that there is less certainty about the effects of changes in the federal funds rate on the economy than about the effects of changes in the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. That's correct. They should live by that. But you'll see as it goes on, it gets worse because they start pushing for balance sheet reduction right away. Moreover, <coughs> participants stated that the Fed funds rate is a more familiar tool to the general public and therefore is advantageous for communication purposes. A few participants also noted that when Fed funds rate is away from their effective lower bound, the committee could more nimbly change interest rate policy than balance sheet policy in response to economic conditions. Participants also discussed some key differences between the current economic conditions and that, those that prevailed during the previous episode and remarked that the committee would have to take these differences into account in removing policy accommodation. Most notably, participants remarked that the current economic outlook was much stronger with higher inflation and a tighter labor market than at the beginning of the previous normalization episode. They also observed that the Federal Reserve's balance sheet was much larger both in dollar terms and relative to nominal gross G GDP, than it was at the end of the third large-scale asset purchase program in late 2014. Participants noted that the current weighted average maturity 
of the Federal Reserve uh, Treasury holdings was shorter than at the beginning of the previous normalization episode. Some observed that as a result, depending on the size of any caps put on the pace of runoff, the balance sheet could potentially shrink faster than the last time if the committee followed its previous approach to phasing out the reinvestment of maturing treasury securities and principal payments on agency MBS. However, several participants raised concerns about the vulnerability in the treasury market and how those vulnerabilities could affect the appropriate pace of balance sheet normalization. So there are a few people thinking on the committee. That's a good thing. A couple of participants noted that the SRF could help to mitigate such concerns. Participants also judged the Federal Reserve to be better positioned for normalization than in the past as the ample reserves framework and the Federal Reserve's current interest rate control tools, including interest on reserve balance and the overnight uh, reverse repurchase agreement uh, on RRP facility are in place and working well. Some participants judged that a significant amount of balance sheet shrinkage could be appropriate over the normalization process, especially in light of abundant liquidity in money markets and elevated usage of the on RRP facility. Uh, you know, that abundant liquidity is abundant until it goes away. And we saw that in the great financial crisis. So they should act in a measured way over time, not this rush, accelerate everything, do it all at once and see what happens. And that's what the language here is implying. And that's why the market got spooked yesterday. Now, participants had an initial discussion about the appropriate conditions and timing for starting balance sheet runoff relative to raising the federal funds rate from the ELB, the effective lower bound. They also discussed how this relative timing might differ from the previous experience in which the balance sheet runoff commenced almost two years after the policy rate liftoff when the normalization of the Fed funds rate was judged to be well, well underway. Almost all participants agreed that it would likely be appropriate to initiate balance sheet runoff at some point after the first increase in the target range for the federal funds rate. This is what scared the hell out of the market, and justifiably so. Like, wait a year. You know, see how the market deals with rate hikes and the taper before you start quantitative tightening and actually literally sucking liquidity out. Never mind stopping to increase liquidity, but sucking liquidity out. Uh, however, participants judged that the appropriate timing of the balance sheet runoff would likely be closer to that of policy rate liftoff than in the committee's previous experience. Uh, that's not good. They noted that current conditions included a stronger economic outlook, higher inflation, and a larger balance sheet. So they're responding to the peak inflation readings that came in uh, uh, coincident with the December 15th and 16th meeting, and they're all emotionally reacting like a bunch of retail traders on a uh, uh, one of those um, uh, discus boards or whatever they call uh, Discord uh, uh, chat rooms. Uh, they, they should join a day trading community so they can you know respond to all the emotional squiggles in the market and uh, and short term headlines rather than thinking in a professional tempered, longer-term view and not doing it all at once before you know the impact of one thing. Um, okay, they noted that the current condition, okay, uh, so, and could, uh, could warrant a potentially faster pace of policy rate normalization. So now they want to not only start the quantitative tightening two years faster than they did last time, they want to increase the speed of rate hikes. They emphasize that the decision to initiate runoff would be data dependent. God help us. Let's hope that's true. 
some participants commented that removing policy accommodation by relying more on balance sheet reduction and less on increases in the policy rate could help limit yield curve flattening during policy normalization. Now that's important. At least they have their eye on the flattening yield curve um, because that guarantees a recession. So if they think they can finesse this balance sheet runoff to keep the yield curve steep while they're doing it, which I doubt they can, but let's assume they can. It's never been done. It would be an experiment. That would be the best of all possible worlds, uh, a Goldilocks scenario, but I don't think that's going to be the case. The last line is especially important. These are my words now. It indicates that they are cognizant about the implications of a flattening yield curve. The implication is that if they move forward with balance sheet runoff after the first rate hike. Perhaps they will be less aggressive on the pace of subsequent hikes, although that was not evident in their uh, verbalization above, which I just read to you, as they are draining liquidity with the balance sheet runoff. That would potentially meet their goal of keeping the yield curve steep while cooling a hot economy at the same time. It would be an innovative but untested approach. The more likely outcome is that by the time they meet to discuss the second hike, inflation will have moderated, still above trend, but declining rate of change, and perhaps they will moderate their hiking pace in line with the new data. That would be the best case scenario, and that will be the ideal soft landing. The most important thing to keep meaning, rather than three hikes in 2022, maybe one to, one to two, uh, would be more consistent if we're correct about inflation moderating uh, sometime after March. The most important thing to keep in mind is that these minutes were likely coincident with peak readings across all inflation measures. Time will tell, but when you look back, it will likely be clear that this, was a, this panicked rhetoric you see above was a short-term overreaction. Okay, outlook. Uh, on Friday, Jack, okay, so we covered that. Thanks again to Jack Denton at Barron's and Ellie over at Fox Business, Ellie Tarrant. Uh, okay, value. Value is trying to climb back into pole position as it did in Q1 of 2021. The Q1 move in 2021, despite lack of follow-through for the remainder of the year, was enough to make energy the top-performing sector in 2021, uh, as well as financials was in the top three as well. We're seeing kind of a repeat of this uh, once again, which would be very, very constructive. Uh, this was the value-to-growth move. Uh, and it's starting to pick back up again. We saw it the first few days of the year, financials dramatically outperforming tech. You see this, this table here. <clears throat> and we have the ascent and breakout of the 10-year yield to thank for this early rotation. Uh, we've consistently said value, small, uh, small cap cyclicals outperform with a steepening uh, rising rate environment. Now, we'll now see if we get follow through in coming weeks. So we did get some follow through today on the 10-year yield. So it barely broke out yesterday, and I think it pushed through to 173. So it's a real breakout uh, so far. For those of you who have followed my podcast video cast for some time, you know our base case was 2 to 2.25% on the 10-year yield for Q1 2022. Uh, uh, however, we also pointed to the last cycle when the 10-year yield peaked counterintuitively when they announced taper and, st and started coming down uh, yield started coming down as they were slowly pulling out as a buyer, i.e. new demand showed up at that point. So last time they announced the taper here, it tried to break out and then it rolled over. So, you know, we'll see if this is going to be another one of these cases where it peaks. I think at 2%, uh, 2 to 2.5%, you want to start buying all the bonds you can. I think that's going to be the peak for this cycle uh, on the 10-year yield. Um uh, maximum two and a half, but um, so so we we we've got some room, and in the interim, you know, 
energy, financials, cyclicals, industrials can, can all really uh, do, do incredibly well. So, uh, so we'll watch that. Let's see if this breakout is real. Um, and, uh, and that was that. Follow through in this breakout would favor a continuation of the nascent 2022 value trend. A breakdown would bring back a bid into beaten down tech. We favor value. Now, the rotation, the last shall be first. I put, put together a couple um, tables here, uh, one from Novell Investor and one from JP Morgan. And they are an asset class performance by year and sector performance by year. And I think you're going to find this really, really helpful. As we look at both the sector rotation chart and asset class rotation charts, we find one common denominator. It is unusual for a sector or asset class to lead two years in a row. As such, we like to look for laggards to put new money to work. This year, we've, we're focused on industrials for the sector and emerging markets. China is the biggest weight in emerging markets for asset class. Most of our new ads have been in these two groups in recent weeks. That does not mean we drop everything else. It simply means we lean into where there is value and don't chase what has already made the biggest part of its move. Uh, now, key point for those of you listening to the podcast and not on the video cast, this is going to cut off in three minutes at the 60 minute mark to uh, get the rest of it because we're going to start going into the china stuff in just a minute uh, just go to hedgefundtips.com you'll see the first second or third post is the video cast it's a youtube video fast forward that video to minute 60 and you'll pick up word for word exactly where you left off and then later if you miss some of these charts you want to see the visuals you can just rewind it back and see see everything that you heard but but didn't get a chance to see so <clears throat> let's just take a look at uh 2007 real estate was about the worst uh and then in 2008 it picked up a little bit 2009 it was towards the top 2010 it was the best performing sector then it started to roll off 2011 2012 it was the worst performing sector in 2013 so if you just follow this line it moves in these trends then it was the, went from worst to first from 2013 to 2014 then it then it dropped off to it was back to worst in 2016 back up uh in 2018 then it rolled back over then it was the top in 2021 so it just zigzags the last shall be first the last shall be first the last shall be first and the market continues to move because these sectors keep keep uh stepping up um the exception was energy was weak from 2014 to 2020 uh that's you know commodity based that's a different cycle uh, and then it was the f top performer uh, last year, up 54.6%. Uh, financials were the third worst in 2020. They were the third best in 2021. Uh, let's do one more here. Um, how about, let's take uh, healthcare, okay? In 2008, it was the second best. Then it moved down to the middle. Then it was the last in 2010 moved back up to the third best in 2011, then it started falling, then it hovered in the top, then it went to the worst in 2016. By 2018, it was the best again, then it almost the worst again in 2019, middle of the pack the last two years. Uh, so that's, that, it just shows you. So uh, people extrapolate what happened in the recent past is gonna continue, and that's usually the opposite of what happens. Uh, so for this year, what we'd be looking at, what was the worst? Utilities. Um, industrials was the third worst. That's one of our biggest uh, new ads. We're, we're adding a lot of industrials between Boeing, Lockheed, 
a number of others. We like this group a lot for next year. Some healthcare. Uh, Cigna's already had a pretty big move that probably needs to rest for a little bit before uh, moving back up towards 270. Um, and then financial and energy, they'll probably do just fine next year. And don't forget in these rotations, they're usually positive. They're just less positive. Energy's not going to be up 54% in 2022. Financials aren't going to be up 35%. Uh, they'll probably be somewhere in the middle of the pack. And then, you know, two years out, maybe they'll be on the lower of the pack, like you see the normal rotation. So that's why industrials is our top pick. Next is asset class. So, um, if you look at emerging market equities, I love this. It was the best in 2007, the worst in 2008, the best in 2009, the worst by 2010. Back up to the top in 2012, back down to the bottom in 2013, stayed down there. Number one performer in 2017, worst performer in 2018. Back to the top in 2020, worst performer last year, and I think this is gonna be back up to the top next year, which is why that's our top asset class with particular weight on China. So moving on to China, Charlie Munger doubles down on his double down.